Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. We speak to the mother of Amanda Todd, who's been fighting for justice for her daughter for years. And tomorrow she'll come face to face with a man accused of killing her in one of the country's best known cyberbullying cases. Changes are being made to Canada's assisted suicide laws. We speak to one conservative, uh, conservative senator who's fighting to make sure those who are mentally ill aren't given access to this service. We draw the curtain back on the underworld in a new book that introduces you to the operatives, some of them who have brought down the worst criminals of all time, and the Canadian company that hopes to bring us a Canadian vaccine solution. Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I'm listening. The federal government scrambled to purchase and place orders from everywhere they could, and I am grateful to them for doing that. And I am grateful to the federal government for the vaccines that we have received here in Manitoba. Uh, but the approach they have taken means that when it comes to getting vaccinated against COVID, uh, Canada first is in danger of becoming Canada last. Well, if the Prime Minister can't lead on vaccines, then the provinces will do it for him. But it's been one of those news days that, holy Toledo, it never stopped. We had just story after story after story all afternoon long. And I'm going to talk about that message that Manitoba Premier Pallister sent to the Prime Minister and the action he's taking because Mr. Trudeau refused to do so. And it's a telling comment. But obviously for parents, the big news story is news about March break, which is now going to be an April break starting on the 12th. And the reason, according to uh, the education minister, Stephen Lecce, is to limit gatherings so that they can keep schools open. We're governed by advice from the medical community to limit the potential for transmission and really limit or try to prevent um, a scenario we saw over the holidays where there just was a massive spike of transmission uh, and positivity of our, of our kids, of our young, youngest learners. Uh, there are pedagogical reasons, obviously. We want to create consistency for children. That's important to your point about learning quality. But what's driving this really is public health imperatives to protect our province, to not repeat what we saw over the holidays and to make sure that we can keep schools open. Mm-hmm. So here's the uh, slight little challenges, because Easter this year is April 4th. Passover starts March 27th and ends April 4th. Ramadan starts April 12th. So we got this whole whack of uh, religious holidays that happen for weeks right around the April break, which basically sounds like a spread of palooza is about to happen and possibly close schools again because cases are going down uh, but the experts are warning that we're heading into this third wave with these new variants dominating the spread and they also say it'll be the worst of them all so i'm kind of looking at this and saying like is april break going to become a permanent break and during today's modeling Kind of sounded like we were getting good news, you know, with the cases and deaths down, the vaccines helping those in long-term care. But then Dr. Staney Brown, we dropped this little nugget. We're about to, you know, if not reopen, we're going to reduce a lot of the public health measures. And those public health measures, as you say, uh, as they are lifted, cases could rise dramatically. Uh, Am I missing something here, or is this presentation actually predicting a disaster? No, I don't think you're missing anything. 
Okay. So we're heading for a disaster with the variants and we're lifting restrictions anyway? Uh, I, don't, I don't know where to, like, how do you square that circle? And they're already talking about a third lockdown while we're easing restrictions right now, which is why we need those vaccines, the vaccines that aren't coming, which then brings us back to Premier Manitoba, Brian Pallister, who um, over the noon hour I was watching as I watch all day, and he made, I think, what is a pretty stunning announcement declaring that he's going to get his own vaccines. Domestic production is a... No, hold on, just wait, I'll get to that. So he has purchased 2 million doses of a prospective Canadian-made vaccine, and it's now in clinical trials. And we'll chat with that vaccine maker, um, because it's a a company that we've had on the show before called Providence. So we'll get details on how it's this made-in-Canada solution. But this is pretty much an up-yours to the Prime Minister. And that's not Brian Pallister saying that, but it is me saying that, because... He made very clear today in the press conference a couple of times that the provinces, you know, they've been asking the Trudeau government for months to get a made in Canada solution when it comes to vaccines. And apparently all they got was the door slammed in their face. And so Palliser decided, hey, I'll get my own vaccine deal and I'll strike it with this Canadian company that's already got a vaccine in trials right now. They've got a... um, uh, manufacturing plant in both Calgary as well as Toronto, and they say they can make them in a matter of months once approved. And so he's asking the other premiers to join in on this, and they likely will join because Trudeau's not delivering. I mean, not right now, anyway. And maybe he'll get millions of doses in, in a matter of months, and I hope he does. But you look at Canada in the rankings of vaccines, and we are just dropping like a lead balloon. And I guess, you know, look, he had the chance to find a plan B, you know, he had that chance. And now what he's doing is begging others for help because he's now asking India to help clean up the mess. You know, this is a country that he offended with that costume debacle and then further offended even recently weighing into India's domestic matters regarding farmers who are protesting. But even worse than, you know, instead of getting a plan B, he's then taking millions of doses from COVAX, this vaccine program that's supposed to help poor countries, not rich nations, as Mr. Pallister kind of pointed out. Domestic production is a critical aspect of securing better health protection for Canadians going forward, whether it's this pandemic, whether it's consequential challenges we face with some of the byproducts of this pandemic or whether it's next year's pandemic I think it's uh, good that we get our own house in order here you can't help the needy of the world if you're one yourself and you know we can't go on taking back from third world countries what we promised to do to help them and act like we're doing the world a favor we've got to help ourselves and in doing that we'll be able to help other people too and it's even worse because he's taking vaccines from the poor to save his political hide. So I think this is all a very big problem for Trudeau because it just kind of further punctuates his failure to deliver something that he insists is coming, and yet day after day we just keep hearing about holdups and hang-ups and delays. So, you know, we're here months in, and we've got um, a third shutdown looming, you know, we <laughs> We're lifting restrictions, like everything's backwards and upside down, and now provinces are going rogue. And if the provinces can deliver what he can't, you know, Trudeau's in trouble because he had months to come up with his plan B, and he simply didn't want to. 
He simply, I guess, didn't learn anything from the spring, which is that we cannot rely on others to protect us. And he had a chance to invest in a Canadian-made solution, and he chose not to. And so let's see where this takes us. The province is going around the federal government to try to procure you know, vaccines that the federal government basically told them, stay away and don't do that because we're going to do it. Well, you know, you did a deal with China and you got burned. And instead of coming up with a plan B, you decided to wait or wait. No, you're recovering up the we scandal. And here we are with the provinces acting on their own, the federal government kind of doing whatever they're doing. And um, it's all topsy-turvy nonetheless. I'm Alex Pearson. Stay with us here on Point on Global News Radio question is, is Carol Todd getting closer to finding justice for her daughter, Amanda? And this may be a BC case, but what happened to Amanda serves as a cautionary tale for parents and kids right across this country. And it's been a long time since we've talked about this case, but Amanda killed herself when she was just 15 back in October 2012. And her suicide's really been a catalyst for the discussion that we have today on cyberbullying. Because the reason she took her life because is because of the alleged actions of a Dutch man who's accused of bullying and blackmailing her online after he convinced her to send pictures of her naked body and who's accused of then using those pictures as uh, a way to blackmail her, um, you know, to give him a private show. His name is Aiden Coban, and he would end up putting her pictures all over the Internet, which would lead to months of relentless shaming and embarrassment uh, in front of her classmates. And for years, her mother has been fighting to get him brought to Canada from Denmark, where he was arrested back in 2014. And ultimately, yes, he was convicted in a Dutch court on 39 charges of sextortion and sex assault, uh, sex assault involving 39 other victims. And now here we are, eight years later, and he's finally been brought to this country where he faces several charges in connection with Amanda's death. And on Friday, he enters a BC court or will appear by video probably where they start to get the motions underway before his case. Carol Todd is Amanda's mother and she joins us now. Thank you for joining us, Carol. Thanks for inviting me. So this has been a very long journey for you. Um, I mean, it almost seems like yesterday when this case started making headlines, but for you, it has been a constant, constant fight. Do you feel like you're getting closer? It's been a long journey. Um, Amanda's death was October of 2012. Um, it's mm -hmm. been, you know, eight years and, and four months, and it has been a long time. However, um, holding strong, holding steady, and, you know, there was when April 2014, when Aiden Caban's name came up as a suspect, um, we knew that there would be eventually a, a light at the end of that dark tunnel. I only wish that Amanda were alive to see that this would happen, that this is happening, right? Um, the, and it's the Dutch system and, and Aidan Caban lived in Amsterdam and it was, you know, their investigation also that um, brought light to his crimes and, and what did he did against others and possibly allegedly to Amanda. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the claims, um, you know, some of the, the things that this man has been convicted on and, and for um, are just heinous. I mean, some of his victims are as young as five years old. 
Um, and he claims, you know, he's just coming to Canada because he's got to clear his name. I mean, he he that's his message. He's here to clear his name. He has said that he is innocent of all crimes that he has committed against Amanda, against his other victims, and he has held strong on that one. But, you know, Canada wouldn't have extradited him without just cause. And so um, when we when it event when this eventually goes to trial, we will we will hear what um, evidence was found and what the investigation came up with. So I to, it'll be hard to listen to, um, but it's something that will bring that circle of healing a little closer to mm-hmm. you know rounding up. Uh, and it's something that not only myself, but so many others who have followed her story since it came out on the news um, are waiting for. And, and most people are saying justice for Amanda, right? I think everyone sees a little bit of themselves in Amanda, and I think parents, by and large, fear um, you know, what happened to Amanda, because not only did, um, I mean, her tragedy really, uh, I think, started the conversation, the national conversation on cyberbullying and then and the dangers that lurk on the internet. And and when you look back now to what we understand now, to where we were in 2012, do you ever wonder um, where you would be, where Amanda might be, if we had that conversation already going? Well, the conversation was going. It just wasn't going as as rampantly as it has now. Technology wasn't as advanced back then, um, and, and we didn't talk a lot to our kids about, you know, sharing what you, what they did on the internet and if things went wrong to to come to um, a trusted adult to talk about it. We are certainly talking about that aspect a lot more now, and and you see it everywhere. And I mean, Amanda's story isn't just a BC story. It's not just a Canadian story. Yeah. It's, it's gone global. And, and yeah. with that, I've been able to share her story in, in different places around the world. And it's amazing what other countries also, I mean, mm-hmm. every, everything, everyone ha- is having the same difficulties with bullying, with cyberbullying, with exploitation, with extortion. And, mm-hmm. and what Aiden Caban did was he exploited young people. And old people, he exploited people in general, right? And then he extorted um, certain individuals, including Amanda, um, and harassed and threatened. And then that of him publishing images and videos, that led to the bullying and cyberbullying from her peers and from people around on the internet who might have seen it. Um, so there's very two very distinct um, things that have happened, right? And I think it's it's really important for um, families and parents and adults to understand what exploitation and what extortion is. And I think I just saw something on my Google alerts today um, coming out of Toronto, um, the rise in mm-hmm. exploitation and extortion mm-hmm. cases around around Canada. Right? They get yeah. they're getting forty reports. Um, was it per week or per? It couldn't have been per day. I hope 
I hope. Yeah, no, it's going up because, of course, the pandemic has kids all on their screens and parents too, are too distracted to, to watch. And, and, you know, there is such a danger to, you know, allowing kids on their devices. It's, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. dark world if, if they don't have the maturity or the education to know what to avoid. It's a complex, exactly. it's a complicated case though, because, um, you know, the, the internet brings us all together. This man was a, a world away and the damage and, and, and tragedy he, he has created. So even just getting it to this country has been, um, it, it's quite, it's quite exceptional that he, he's here and, and you will come face to face with him. Mm-hmm. I have, well, I have gone, come face to face with him because I attended the court in, in, Denmark. in, in Amsterdam. Um, back in 2017, and I was brought into the court so I could see him face to face. Because at that time, I wasn't sure if extradition would ever happen. I mean, it's been a, a long process because of all the um, approvals that have been needed between both countries. And then also Aiden Savan also appealed between every one of them. So at that time, I needed to go over there to see the court hearings just so I could see him face to face and that he could see me face to face and that I wasn't standing down and that I, we would follow through with whatever he did to Amanda and hopefully he will be um, prosecuted for those, right? Um, but it, it, back to your other statement about education and, and awareness, it's so very important because we are all talking and, and chatting and even especially during these COVID times, right? With, with mm-hmm. others on the internet and through our social media networks. And some of it can come out and be portrayed as so innocent. Someone saying hi, someone, you know, and you fall into that rabbit hole so easily without even knowing and kids yeah. fall into it. And then they get, mm-hmm. if something happens and they send an image or, you know, then they get afraid to tell an adult because they're embarrassed and they don't want to get in trouble or they don't want to get shamed by others. And my biggest words to others out there who have experienced this or parents that need to have that conversation with their, with their kids is that as a parent, we love our children. And if, if, a, if your child comes to you and says they've done this or encourage your children to come and tell you if they've done something that they think, um, it isn't isn't appropriate or someone's talking to them and and in a non-appropriate way they need to share that with the adult so the adult can respond appropriately and and call police or whatever the situation may be because it can it can go out of control so fast right yeah um and and we all do things i mean when you were younger and when I was younger, we did things our parents never knew about, right? Not not at the level because we didn't have or I didn't have the, the technology devices back then. But we did things. And and so this, the social media networks and, and talking to people that you don't know, this is just, it is evolved into a part of growing up. But we need to make aware of the safety precautions of who you're talking to and what information you share and how do you know that that's a real person. And those are the kinds of conversations we all need to have with our families and not only parent to young children, because if you look at dating apps and, and scams and phishing, we have adults who are falling into those traps too. And our seniors are falling into, they're lonely, yeah. they're inside, it's COVID. They now have know how to FaceTime and use technology because that's what's happening in our society. 
but they can also fall into that trap and get and that scam for maybe not sexual images but money, right? And so yeah. it's a big conversation that we all need to continue to want to learn about. And I sort of analogize it to first aid, right? We learn first aid not because we're going to use it tomorrow. We learn first aid just to prepare ourselves for something that might come up in the future. So educating yourself about um, technology and, and social media and um, online safety is part of our digital first aid. Yeah. Right? Certainly the uh, most yeah. innocent things online can often lead to the, the biggest dangers. And so uh, I know that this is a, a journey for you and this is your fight on behalf of Amanda. And I appreciate you joining us and sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. Carol, and we'll talk to you again as you go through this, because I know that these next few months are going to be tough. But nonetheless, I know that this is a, a fight for justice for you, for your daughter. Most definitely. And, and it's not only for Amanda or my family, it's for everyone out there in our country. Yeah. Carol, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. That is Carol Todd, mother to Amanda. And um, it is not just a cautionary tale. Um, you know, may her death hopefully serve as a, a lesson to others to avoid. Stay with us on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The other issue that is in the news that doesn't get any attention is medically assisted suicide. And the Senate right now is voting on changes that the Trudeau government is trying to make to Bill C-7. And the changes, in my opinion, are dangerous. And I agree with the concept that someone should have a right to end their life if they choose. But what is now being proposed, I think, opens a door of assisted suicide to those suffering solely from mental illness. And so there is and should rightly be concerned that this could lead to a slippery slope that vulnerable people could actually be exploited by these changes. And so on Tuesday, the Senate uh, voted to amend the changes to explicitly prohibit those suffering only from mental illness from accessing assisted suicide. But this is one of those issues that has to balance, you know, human rights, and equality. So it's anything but a black and white issue. I want to bring Senator Denise Batters into the conversation. She is, of course, voting on these changes and joins me now. Good to have you. Thank you very much for having me on on this important topic. And it's not just a political issue for you. It's personal because your husband, David, who you've spoken about quite publicly, died by suicide. He did. Yes, absolutely. And so I've seen the unfortunate other side of it and know that Suicide is the worst consequence of, uh, of mental illness. And I want to prevent anybody from having to go through what Dave went through and then what I and our family went through um, and continue to go through, you know, even 12 years later. So I want to make sure that people with mental illness, I've spent a lot of my time over the last 12 years advocating for them, making sure that we tr do everything we can to end stigma and discrimination. So if I thought that this particular provision that the uh, this bill had in it was discriminatory, I wouldn't be supporting it. But I recognize the fact that people with mental illness need help and protection and help to live, um, help, you know, we need to close the gaps. There's such huge gaps in our mental health care system and resources and availability and just to even get an appointment with a psychiatrist mm -hmm. it can take so many months or a year maybe. So we shouldn't be just giving these people who need help and our care and protection an easier means to die by suicide. And this would be a medically assisted suicide when 
what we really should be doing is trying to help them have great productive lives. And there are those who will argue that this will lower suicide rights. It will also give dignity to those who want to end their life. And ultimately, I think no matter what um, will end their lives, if they, they can't get the assistance, what do you say to those people? Well, first of all, um, there's very few countries in the entire world, I think only three, um, that have assisted suicide available for people with mental illness. And they've actually found the opposite. Suicide mm -hmm. rates are not going down in those countries. Um, and plus... Yeah, they've found that it's a very slippery slope. I mean, when you have, uh, to me, it's scary enough that people with uh, things that are treatable mental illnesses, yes, it's, of course, difficult and very serious conditions, but they're treatable. It's not irremediable, which is supposed to be what that particular um, assisted suicide is for, is irremediable conditions, which means does not mean gets worse. It means it can never get better. And you can't say that about, um, about mental illness. There's always the possibility, even people who have, you know, been in very dire circumstances. We had a witness before our committee who was just excellent, Mark Hennick, mm -hmm. a longtime mm -hmm. mental health advocate. He has, he attempted, made a very serious suicide attempt many years ago. He was at the brink and he recovered, took a long time, but now I mean, this guy is an incredible mental health advocate who's done a TED talk with 15 million views. Right. Just think yeah. if he wouldn't be on this earth right now. So um, that's what we need to do is make sure that we give people the help that they need, not just easier access to the lethal means to suicide, because we've seen that that's a situation that can, uh, if people have easier access to lethal means, then there's much more of a chance that they actually die by suicide. I mean, my, my concern, and I have a few, would be for those who, let's say, have Alzheimer's or dementia, um, and obviously it gets worse uh, as, a, as a person advances in the, the um, you know, the illness. My stepfather had it, and at, their, you know, at certain points, they simply cannot make decisions for themselves. And uh, my concern would be that someone would make that decision for them by using yes. this. Well, that's the thing, right? We need to protect the most vulnerable people. And maybe in some situations, we might think about the best case scenario of someone is very ill, has been going down for a long time, really wants that. But we have to think about the people that maybe don't have a very good support system or, or in poverty or from, um, you know, vulnerable communities. We've heard a lot in this particular legislation from the disabled community, and they're very right. concerned about what the procedures are. And um, for things like um, Alzheimer's and dementia and that sort of thing, the Senate actually passed another very alarming um, amendment yesterday, last night, um, to allow for these types of advanced directives. And my concern on that, perhaps that that's something that will come into the future. But this amendment was so vague, it really is something that I would be frankly shocked if the government accepted that one, because it is so vague. There's no, um, no safeguards available. There's no details on it. So the mental illness one is very concerning because it just opens that issue up to, you know, people for whom suicidality is often mm -hmm. a symptom of mental illness. So um, this is why I just think it's untenable to allow it. We need to give people help and better resources and fix the healthcare system, not give them the means to die by a doctor or medical practitioner's hand. Um, there's already 4,000 people every year in Canada die by suicide. And last year, 5,600 people died by assisted suicide. So with this expansion, with this bill, 
where it doesn't even require near death anymore. And with potentially mental illness being opened up, it's just, you know, it could really increase those floodgates. So on the mental illness thing, I'm so concerned about this. I'm really just pleading to the federal government and to the members of the House of Commons that this bill will go back to before it's passed and asking them, please do not do this. The people who in Canada who are mentally ill, they need our help and are promised that we will never give up on them, even when they can see no other option but to give up on themselves. So where do things stand now? Because I know there have been some votes on this on Tuesday. I know that there are votes that ha- happened uh, today. Yes. Um, has a moratorium been put on Bill C-7 as to certain changes when it comes to the, this um, particular area of the bill? Well, so that um, particular mental illness with, you know, it sound, a very innocuous sounding sunset yeah. clause that passed on Tuesday night. And then last night, the part about the advanced directives passed. Um, what happens is we, there's still more amendments coming forward today. There's conscience rights ones and things like that. Um, once all of those t- types of amendments are dealt with, then the Senate will um, debate it as a whole at the, to finish off the third reading and then decide whether or not to send the bill amended back to the House of Commons there's still a possibility that could be defeated. There's very serious concerns from the people with disabilities in Canada about the bill as a whole and how discriminatory it is for them. Um, but then, you know, if, if it passes the Senate, then it goes back to the House of Commons because Houses of Parliament both have to pass a bill um, in a certain existing format for it to be considered law. The House mm-hmm. of Commons and the government look at the bill, decide whether to accept any of those Senate amendments or to send them back to the to the Senate um, unchanged or maybe with some accepted and some not. I'm really hoping that they decide against the mental illness one, also Mm -hmm. against the advanced directive one. And then they send it back to the Senate and uh, the Senate decides whether to try to insist on their amendments or to accept the bill as is. um, So we will see what happens. There could be a little bit of ping pong back and forth, but frankly, this is people's lives and it's very, very important situation. So if people are also concerned about this mental illness, um, issue, I encourage them to phone their member of parliament and encourage them, you know, to vote against allowing mental illness to be included as eligibility for, uh, for assisted suicide. Well, there's not a lot of scrutiny these days going on in parliament. So I'm pleased no. that at least this issue has been uh, given some second sober thought. So we'll um, continue to watch for this. And I appreciate your time on the Senator. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. We'll keep an eye on that one. That is Senator Denise Batters joining me here. So, yeah, it's a bit of a slippery slope, but one that needs to be done very, very carefully. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Earlier this week, a longtime Hells Angel became Toronto's latest murder victim. This was a full-patch member of the Hells Angel killed in an execution-style shooting in a garage of an apartment on the Danforth. And um, this guy, Harry Lanis, escaped death two years ago and was well known as part of a very sophisticated crime ring impersonating cops back in 2008. He lived a high risk life and died because of it. And when it comes to the underworld, Canada has a very big underworld. I mean, in the last few years, we've just seen an explosion of money laundering across this country with sex and drug trafficking at record levels. We've got gang shootings. We've got turf wars. We've had numerous mobsters taken down in the last couple of years. And those who solve these kinds of crimes do so at great risk because they have to infiltrate this dark world and become part of it to stop it. 
And if you're like me and you love learning the backstory to how some of the worst criminals have been brought down, my next guest has put together a collection of first-hand account stories from operatives who joined the underworld of the worst monsters in order to stop them. Stephen Matelski joining me now, a former cop who teaches criminology, psychology at Mohawk College, also lecture, uh, lectures about organized crime at Queen's University, and is now the author of his new book, Undercover. Good to have you. Oh, thanks so much, Alex, for having me back. And I tried to shorten that up to kind of include your accolades because you, you've done a lot over the last uh, few decades when it comes to policing. But you have put together this book, which, you know, talks to people firsthand who have infiltrated people like um, Pablo Escobar, uh, Vito Rizzuto, who's well known here in the um, GTA Hamilton area, uh, Donnie Brasco. I mean, these are people who pretty much had to hang out with the worst of the worst. Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to put this account together directly from the mouths of the men and women who walk the walk and talk the talk in the underworld, sometimes for years. Uh, you know, on both sides of the border, too, I wanted it to be a nice collection of operatives from the United States, FBI, DEA, ATF, and then in Canada, OPP, some local municipal services, uh, really a good mix of just really compelling stories that, you know what, intelligence work rarely ever makes the front page of the newspaper or it's on the six o'clock news. So I really wanted to take the reader into a world where most people have never even realized existed, let alone ventured into. Well, that's because not only does it put the officers who go undercover in such danger, but um, these investigations are so often, I guess, lengthy. They don't just happen in a couple of months. I mean, the people that go undercover and become operatives basically have to become that life. Uh, for a a good long time. Yeah, for sure. Like just an example, Jay Dobbins, an ATF operative uh, in Arizona, he actually infiltrated the Hells Angels in Arizona for two full years. And, you know, it's ironic with the the actual full patch member getting killed in Toronto last night. uh, Jay Dobbins uh, practically escaped a Hells Angels hit team solely based on rumors that were being spread. Not that he was an undercover cop. It was Mm -hmm. just pure rumor and speculation about his behavior and demeanor in the club. So when you look at motives for any types of these homicides in the underworld, they could range from, you know, gambling debts, saying the wrong thing to the wrong person, overstepping your boundaries. Uh, But in in the undercover world, there's no second take. And if they find out you're wired or you're an undercover operative, you know, most times it's serious bodily harm or death. For these operatives and the book really there's there's more than uh, probably about a dozen you know really herring accounts where they've literally you know faced the, the the barrel of a gun or imminent death and were able to escape that moment based on their skills and their training who um how did you get these guys uh, and gals i would assume are, are in this book but how do you get these guys to, to tell their story because once they've left that life um they're still in danger are they not yeah, well, you know what? There really is a tight-knit network. Uh, in my previous experience, I did undercover work, nowhere near mm-hmm. what the people did in this in my book, Undercover. Um, but there really is an underground network where we have that connection. And once I was able to make uh, connections, a lot of these people I know, um, mm-hmm. some I didn't, but they were more than happy to connect me uh, once I was able to, you know, establish my credibility, not only as a writer, but 
as somebody who actually did the same job that they did. And that sort of opened the door for me where I think a lot of other people might not have had uh, that opportunity. I, I felt very fortunate. And, you know, I thank all these people in the book because the book is really was really because of them. And um, I'm very thankful that they were a part of it. Yeah, I mean, if if you're if you're into this kind of thing, and I I I mean, I spend a lot of time watching you know forensic shows and crime shows because I just find them very fascinating, and it's probably because in my work I've also done a lot of of crime coverage as a reporter. But um, you know, you get an inside look into you know New York mob boss that you talk about, Paul Castellano. Uh, the Gambino family. You also have uh, inside, you know, information about the Iceman, this uh, Richard Kuklinski, who was just an absolute monster. Was there one particular um, operative that you talked to that kind of just left you speechless? Yeah, you know what? They're all. It's it's very difficult, but you left off uh, with Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. He yeah. is without a doubt the most psychotic, uh, deviant sociopathic mafia hitman ever. And Dominic yeah. Polifrone uh, got face-to-face with him over the course of four months. Richard Kuklinski was a freelance uh, hitman for the mafia, but then he began to kill out of sheer pleasure. And he was using cyanide in a spray mist bottle. And he literally would just spray people in the face and they would be, they would be yeah. dead within seconds. And, and he felt no remorse. I mean, I've seen interviews with him. He didn't. He was like the honey badger. He didn't give up about anybody. He, he felt no remorse. And then he'd go home to his family like just a sweet old husband and dad. Absolutely. Like he is the epitome of that Jekyll and Hyde persona who is just void of emotion. And that's really one of the psychopathic traits is, you know, narcissism, uh, you know, void of any emotion. They're not fearful of anything. And that makes these. Uh, people in the world that much more dangerous because they're just not afraid of anything or regretful of what they do. So you had Dominic Olafone, you know, face to face with this guy. He's wired up and the Iceman's right there talking to him about how he froze people, how he shot people, stabbed people, sprayed them in the face with cyanide, you know, and Dominic was really that last undercover piece of this huge puzzle in New Jersey that they were you know, mm. trying to put the Iceman away. And he was responsible for that. But he literally risked his life, even against the advice of the ATF. You know, they said, you're crazy yeah. if you're going to do this. But, you know, he went ahead and did it. And I, another part of the book is these operatives don't do this for extra pay. It, it's, you don't, there isn't any. It's, you know, they want to put these horrendous criminals behind bars. And, and that's... Yeah. The, the point I wanted to make, and even to bring it back into Canada, you know, uh, Karen Moffat, a retired inspector with the OPP, you know, she was one of the first women uh, in policing in the early 80s. Like, undercover training didn't start in Ontario until the early 80s, and she was in that group. And even the work she did throughout her career is just incredible, you know, infiltrating biker gangs yeah. uh, in Ontario. Uh, she played the sort of the girlfriend of uh, mm. Marvin the Weasel Elkind, you know, mixing and, and rubbing elbows with all these mobsters in Detroit and Hamilton and Toronto. Just incredibly risky work, but it's just, I wanted to highlight a nice genre, a nice mix of, of work from the United States and Canada, and it's really from everything from the 1970s right up to present, so... What? You'd have to have such thick skin. I mean, honestly, you'd, I mean, that's not the kind of work you go home and just uh, 
head off to bed. I mean, the 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 <laughs> amount of adrenaline and uh, fear, and uh, it's just it, it, there's so many. It's such a volatile kind of um, career path, but nonetheless fascinating nonetheless and i would think it's very difficult in 2021 to even do it given it'd be so easy for these um bad guys to kind of trace you find you and make sure you are who you are so it's a it's a fascinating look how do people when your book goes on sale tomorrow correct the book's for sale right now um it's on okay. amazon.ca or amazon.com Good stuff. The book is called Undercover. And of course, Stephen also comes on the show when I do get mob hits or, or big hits on, um, you know, uh, on um, the underworld and, and shares his experience with us. So we'll have you back. Congratulations and thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me again, Alex. I really appreciate it. That is Stephen Matelski. The book is Undercover. So if you like to get the behind the scenes look of these big crime stories and how they got solved, this one is for you. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. We have uh, learned the hard way that we cannot rely on only one source of supply, and that supply is somewhere outside of Canada. So today I am pleased to announce that here in Manitoba we are investing in a Made in Canada solution. I'm pleased to announce today that we have entered into a preliminary agreement with uh, Providence Therapeutics to purchase uh, 2 million doses of a new mRNA COVID-19 vaccine that will be manufactured here in Manitoba. From his lips to God's ears, that is Premier Brian Pallister announcing that he has made a deal for a Canadian-made vaccine solution. And of course, this is a company that has operations in both Toronto and Calgary and can and has produced this mRNA vaccine that's now in human trials. And this is apparently one that acts like Moderna, requires two doses, but is easier to deliver. It still needs testing, still needs regulatory approval, but if everything goes according to plan, they hope to make it onto market before 2021 is over. And boy, oh boy, had the Trudeau government just moved sooner and made the investments Imagine where we might be today. Brad Sorensen is CEO of Providence Therapeutics. I had him on a couple of weeks ago. I had a feeling his phone would ring, and it did. Thank you for joining us, Brad. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Something tells me you've gotten very busy in the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm I'm thrilled that the province has made a deal. It might be Manitoba, but I'm hoping the other premiers join. I think there's a lot of questions, though, as, you know, can this be done? Um, you know, you need an investment from the Trudeau government around $150 million, but can you do it without that? Oh, absolutely. So the, the and it's available. The, the the proposal that I that I submitted to the federal government. It's the, anybody can download and see it and see what was uh, rejected by the federal government. It's on our website. And um, but that was for 50 million doses. And in order for us to do 50 million doses, we would need you know, 150 million up front. And we weren't asking for a handout. We were asking for a deposit. You know, a down payment. And um, and we got no response, none. And so uh, I got a phone call from from the province of Manitoba, and they said, "Can we buy doses?" And I said, "Can you?" Because I, I you know I didn't realize the provinces could buy directly. And they said, "Yeah, we can." I said, "Well, then, fantastic. Let's get a deal done." And yeah. um, and so you know I, I I don't need 150 million. If it turns out that uh, you know all I get orders from the provinces is you know 10, 20 million then uh, we'll book that order and we'll make it happen. 
what sounds like me to me the biggest challenge as I listen to the press conference this afternoon is that you know you still need regulatory approval. You're going through the human trials now, and so you'll be able to collect, uh, I think, a fair amount of data by you know, the springtime, but it's it's going to require, um, you know, us to expedite things. And ultimately, Health Canada is going to have to move on this and not be slow and sluggish as they are known to do. Do you think that you can get the regulatory approval uh, soon enough? No, no. When, when I when I expressed frustration with the Canadian government, I, I need to distinguish. Uh, Health Canada has been fantastic mm. with us. Um, That's good news. Uh, the you know the NRC has been fantastic. Engine's been fantastic. It's just mm-hmm. you know when you when you move up beyond you know the people that are actually doing the work day to day, and you get up into the leadership and the strategic thinking. That's where that's where it falls off a cliff. Um, so, but you, you know we're not we're not we're not asking Health Canada to rush anything. You know we're we're going to put together a very good phase two phase three clinical plan uh, that will start in May. It will be about three thousand. Uh, volunteers, and it will be a comparator trial. Half of those people will receive our vaccine. Half of those people will receive either uh, Moderna or BioNTech uh, vaccine. And we will track those results and prove what they refer to as non-inferiority. So all we have to do is show that we're as good as, as those other guys, and we'll get approved. And all of the data that we've got to date leads us to believe that that's going to happen. Uh, the you know there's there's been two mRNA vaccines that went into clinical trials, both of them got approved. Both of them had 95% uh, uh, efficacy, and uh, we see absolutely no reason why we won't be uh, in that category. And um, you know you can get a Ford, you can get a GM, you can get a Dodge. Uh, they're all going to get you to A to B. Our vaccine is going to do what it needs to do. Yeah. Look, uh, the last time I had you on, uh, you know, uh, you were starting to get a lot of attention from the media. So I'm glad that the phone rang and it was Manitoba's premier on the line. I'm hoping that the premier's answer, uh, Premier Pallister's, um, you know, bid, because the more premiers you can get on board, clearly the better it is, um, you know, to getting bigger orders. How much would you be able to produce of this particular vaccine, let's say it gets approved in the next few months, and how quickly could you get it into the arms of Canadians? Because we're rushing against time with these variants now threatening another third uh, lockdown and wave. So starting in July, uh, out of the facility, the emergent facility in uh, in Winnipeg, uh, we will be producing 50,000 vials, and we have 10 doses per vial. So that is half okay, a million doses good. a day that will start in July. Now, we'll actually produce tens of millions of doses before we receive our clinical approval. Uh, so we'll receive our clinical approval. You know, we're going to, like I said, we're doing it properly. We're, we're asking Health, Health Canada to do their job properly and be thorough. And we expect that we'll finish our trial in September, uh, submit for emergency use authorization, we hopefully will hear back within a month, two tops, and uh, and as soon as that approval happens, it'll be ready to roll out into the to the needs of Canadians. Now, if Canadians have vaccines by then, guess what? We'll just turn around and sell it into the international marketplace. Mm-hmm. Nobody nobody doubts the fact that there's there is not enough supply to meet demand on a worldwide scale. So, this I love how how Premier Pallister said this is an insurance policy. Yeah, you know. There's no reason that the premiers should have any hesitation getting behind this. They they, they either get doses from, from from the federal government or they get doses from us, 
And if they mm-hmm. get doses from the federal government, then they, they just resell the doses. And, and I can tell you right it. now, yeah, go ahead. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're, pri- we're, we're, we're giving them a heck of a deal. Uh, mm-hmm. they'll, probably end up make, they'll probably end up making money. I don't care about the money at this point. I just want vaccines in Canadians' arms because we, we need this. We need to get our economy recovered. We need to save um, elderly people. Quickly, before I let you go, is it as finicky as Pfizer, or is this one of those vaccines that is much easier to ship and get out to people? Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're minus 20. We're more like the Moderna. Okay. I love a Canadian-made solution. I wish this could have been done months ago. And, Brad, I am on Team uh, Providence Therapeutics, and I hope you guys can get this done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That is Brad Sorensen. We will uh, continue to follow this journey, and uh, let's hope that uh, we can get this Canadian solution to market and into Canadian arms. It is a win-win. And again, I think the big thing, as Brad and uh, both uh, uh, Premier Pallister said, you know, if we don't use it now, we'll have it for the future. We cannot and must not ever have to rely on others. If we've learned nothing in this pandemic, let it be that. Stay with us here on Point on Global News Radio. You can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.